0: Hey everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. I'm Raymond Okapel. And I'm Sophie Glomperens. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this podcast, we'll be discussing the first installment of C.S. Lewis's science fiction space trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, published in 1938. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to unreliable narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't. Welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators. I'm really excited for this episode. I've been waiting for it. Actually, maybe there's a whole reason why I wanted to start this podcast is because I saw it on the list. Uh, <laughs> and I have a
1: Wait, I have true? a personal
0: connection. Well, okay. It's it's um it's half true. I wanna say. We like it's to half lie. This fine. is I was I was the most excited to talk about this topic. Okay. It's one of my favorite trilogies of all time and i think just criminally underrated i have (laughs) i it's so it's so frustrating to me that so few people have read this but everyone that i have talked to who has actually actually read it um just absolutely loves it and there are people who read it and just find it boring um which I am hoping if there are anybody listening who is in that category that I might be able to change their mind. Hopefully. You've read the first book, right?
1: Correct. I read Out of the Silent Planet when I was, I want to say 13, something like that. Um, and then I started Paralandra and I got a little bogged down in Paralandra and meant to go back to it and just forgot to do it. So I've read one and maybe an eighth of a book of the space trilogy
0: yeah i think maybe the reason why i love it so much is because i was introduced to it in a much in a different way than most people were because when i i first was introduced to the story because my dad would tell us tell it to us as as kids as a bedtime story when i was five and so i was already sort of hooked on the story to begin with Mm -hmm. and then when i was 12 he read it to me and he would be he was able to explain all the difficult vocabulary words so i guess i'm connected to it that way and so i have a different a different perspective or i was introduced to it in a way that a lot of people aren't i suppose and maybe yeah. that's part of it
1: well that's interesting to me because you were you were introduced to it as if it were mythology which is interesting because right c s lewis is creating a cosmic mythology that also meshes with the Christian mythology. So that's kind of, I think, a fitting way to, to first hear the story.
0: Right. To perceive it as mythology is actually the correct way, I think, of looking at it. And I think yeah. that's probably why it's so misunderstood is because Lewis was purporting this or selling it as science fiction. And he was using the science fiction genre, and it was just a genre that already existed. Right. And that's what people expected. And that's a lot of his critics, like Orwell, for instance, was criticizing criticizing all of the fantastic and supernatural elements in the story and would have encouraged it to be a little bit more like a social critique, which is what he did. And, of course, he wants everyone to do that because that's what Orwell does. Um, but I think the preface of the third installment, That Hideous Strength, says, Um, I have called this book a fairy tale so that nobody who is not interested in fairy tales would read the first two chapters and then complain of their disappointment because (laughs) the rest of the book is pretty, I mean, it starts pretty ordinary and then it gets really strange really fast. Yeah. Um, Before we jump into the summary, I think the central idea and what we really need to understand in order to understand this is the space trilogy is that it's meant to be a paradigm shift it's meant to 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 challenge the way that you look at things specifically human beings human evil and more broadly christianity he Mm -hmm. really wanted and i mean lewis's motto is that you want to steal past watchful dragons right you you think that you know what the Christian story is and you think that it's become it's become too familiar with you and his his tax task was to unfamiliarize it and and he does this and particularly in the space trilogy by by I mean the title out of the silent planet we want to get to why it's called that because that's actually really central to it but it's it's about interplanetary space travel travel about a protagonist named ransom who is, who is taken to another planet. But uh, there's a lot of satire in this. I think it's almost Swiftian in this sense. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the the, the, the sort of philosophical purpose of this journey is to turn around and look back at Earth and say, you know, look at Earth through alien eyes, so to speak. And I sort of have like an illustration in my head about this idea. So like... I, I was an English teacher in China for like six months and I've not long enough to really pick up everything. But there, there, this did happen to some extent when I was – and this happens when you live in another culture for long enough. They did this thing in, in the Chinese culture. You don't um, – it's very common to drink warm water even in the summertime. And their rationale behind that is because your body is warm. So the thing that you should put in your body should match what is the temperature of your body. So why would you put cold water in your Weird. body? Which is like, I never thought about that before. That's really strange. And and so, like, I thought that was strange at first. And then, you know, after living there for six months, I come back here. And I still liked having cold water in the summer. That's true. But when I go to a restaurant in the middle of winter in December and I asked for water and they give me ice water, I'm like, why are you doing this? (laughs) (laughs) It was like, okay, that's like, uh, this is a silly example, but it was one of those things where I had always taken that for granted and now I realize, you know, that's actually kind of strange. Why would you give me cold ice water in the middle of winter when it's freezing? Um, O'Connor had a similar, Flannery O'Connor had a similar idea because she lived in Georgia and then she went to New York and to and she said that she went to live in New York. She wanted to go north to learn about the South because she wanted to write about the South. And she wanted to get that bird's eye view of different perspective of her own culture. And so cultural shifts will do that, but I think that the direction of this story is not horizontal, it's upwards. It's literally upwards. Yeah. Um yep. it's it's much broader because the task is not to look at a culture from a different perspective. Uh, from an alien perspective it's to look at the human race from an extraterrestrial perspective yeah and that includes everything not just culture but also just human existence human sin human evil Mm -hmm. that sort of thing is particularly what it's a meditation on
1: i think it's interesting that when we when we open I mean, you're about to talk about this because you're about to talk about the way the story opens, but to jump in with this, that uh, Dr. Ransom is on a walking tour, and that's where he runs into Weston and Divine and how he ends up in this spaceship. Um, it's interesting because Dr. Ransom is already kind of a roaming sort of person. He's already not super rooted to one place, um, and he he's already sort of inclined to wander around and maybe run into adventures um not this kind of adventure but he maybe is exactly the right person to stumble upon this kind of story or upon this kind of adventure because of the fact that he is already kind of maybe willing or open to seeing the world in a different perspective because he already likes he already likes traveling he already likes adventure
0: Right, so Ra- Ransom is a man around, he's a single man around his 40s. He's an Oxford Don and, and a philologist. He is, yeah, he's, He's. as, as you say, he's, he starts, the story starts, he's on a walking tour. He stumbles, he's looking for lodging. He stumbles into a cottage of two of his old colleagues. One of them is a professor. One of them is an old school uh, classmate of his. Uh, the, the the professor's name is Weston, and he's sort of his personality is very cold and distant. Um, he has, and he's really the brains of it. And then there's Divine, uh, who is Ransom's old classmate, and his personality is much more like worldly oriented. He's sort of the popular, uh, sardonic, ironic kid. Um, and he kind of hasn't really changed a whole lot since his earlier days. So they have two very different motivations. So they're. He stumbles into this old cottage, and then what happens is that Ransom is is drugged. And I'm I'm not I'm not going to actually ex- summarize exactly how this happens. I'm going to tell you the way that Lewis tells it because I think it's the most interesting way of telling it. So Ransom is is drugged as he when he stumbles into this cottage, and then he wakes up and he hears, overhears a conversation of him being taken somewhere, and he is terrified of course he doesn't know what's going to happen and he tries to escape but he gets knocked out and when he regains consciousness he finds himself in some sort of room and it's a it, it's a really weird room and it's it's really hot so he notices things slowly he takes it in slowly first he notices that it's hot then he leans over and he realizes that the wall is really is like like really hot and then he looks up out of the window and he sees the moon. And the moon is unnaturally huge and bright. And then he concludes, oh oh yeah, I've been drugged. So there must be something wrong with, this, with, with, with my eyes. Then he notices some other strange things about the room. He notices that the floor seems to be smaller than the ceiling. And yet when he looks down in the corner, there are perfect perpendicular right angles. So he thinks, "Oh yeah, my eyes have really been damaged." He tries to get out of bed and he f- and he feels like he's surprised how strong he is because he literally flies across the room when he does it. Then he notices other things. He notices a strange tinkling noise and he s- hears this vibration all around of him, all around him. And then he realizes that he's must be in some kind of moving vessel. And he thinks, yeah, "Well, I've got to be I can't be in a submarine." yeah i am probably in the air i must be in some kind of airship and then and then terror sets in when he realizes there could be no full moon that night there was no full moon so whatever that giant orb is can't possibly be the moon and then and then you get to the beautiful plot twist at the end of this chapter when weston comes into the room Ransom explodes. Weston, Weston, what is it? It's not the moon. Not that size. It can't be. Can it? No, replied Weston. It's the earth.
1: It's so good. I just
0: love, I love C.S. Lewis's storytelling. I mean, I I, I just, this is, I think, what part of what makes Lewis such a great novelist. Mm-hmm. Because, and this is sort of also, this is in why, in my opinion, I, I prefer Lewis to Tolkien, although I know Tolkien's a great writer. I mean, because when you when you know you're like Tolkien is describing a room, you know he would just describe the room. okay, It's this long and you know there's you know this pot sitting in the kitchen and there's this clock on the mantelpiece and blah 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 blah, you describe everything in the room. Yeah, but Lewis descri- describes everything as a process of discovery the world that he's constructed is actually really complicated. So what Ransom discovers actually is that the spaceship he is on is a giant sphere. It's a ball. And it and the reason why it's a ball is because it simulates artificial gravity. So Lewis invented the Death Star before George Lucas and doesn't get credit for it. <laughs> but, and that's the reason why the ceiling looks bigger than the floor is because the entire structure is like you know you know a slats emanating from the center but it's smaller than it would be on an earth so it's like the little prince you know it's sort of a weird minuscule planet right um and it would have been really boring and really and really it'd be way too complicated if you were to just explain all of that and you get really bogged down if you read the stories of jules verne Mm -hmm. it was interesting at the time for 19th century audiences i guess but um But Jules Verne just spends way too much time just describing how things work instead of like waking up. Okay, you wake up. Okay, I think I'm here. Oh, I'm not actually here. I think that's the moon, but it's not actually the moon. And and that's the slow uncovering of realizing what's happening piece by piece. And then once you get the final plot twist, the plot twist of realizing that you're in space, you believe it. Mm
1: -hmm. You believe
0: it a lot more then you would believe it otherwise. And part of that is because he's showing, he's not telling.
1: The other great thing about this way of doing sci-fi, because I I completely agree with what you're saying. And I also am a huge science fiction fan. I really, really like sci-fi novels, which is interesting because I'm not exactly a math and science person. Um, So the thing that's primarily interesting to me is the fact that within the world of sci-fi, you can tell stories that you can't tell in other kinds of genres or in other kinds of worlds. Um, And what's really great about using uh, scientific knowledge or um, technology or whatever you're using, what's great about using that as a way of um, telling a story is that if I don't understand how we got to the point where the ship operates in this way or this is how we know that we're on a spaceship... um, I don't, I don't care. Like, for example, I I was listening to this as I was rereading it. I was listening to it on an audiobook and I somehow missed some crucial part of the whole reasoning for why the ship is like, the walls are so weird, like they're parallel, but also like it's all sloped and it's kind of like a globe. I completely missed why that was a thing, um, but it didn't matter. It wasn't important. I accepted that it was part of the story and I moved on, which is what I think is really brilliant about the way that he utilizes the sci-fi genre, um, if you miss something crucial or if you don't, if, if you skip over or don't completely comprehend the sci-fi part of it, it's just a storytelling method for getting to where he wants to go, which is really cosmic mythology, which is a really interesting blending of those two ideas.
0: Right. He doesn't get bogged down in the technicalities of how things work which i think makes him different from other sci-fi authors and he's going to challenge a lot of sci-fi authors later on because i mean he's always focused on the story he's always focused on the action Mm -hmm. so let's go back to that yeah so let's continue with the story so ransom discovers that his kidnappers are taking him to a place called malacandra he asks what is malacandra they say we're not going to tell you but it's some other planet, and it is a planet in the solar system, and we have a name for it, but we don't know what it is yet. We and he won't, and he won't, and they won't tell Ransom why they're taking him there. But Ransom overhears a conversation that in which West and Divine are talking about Sorns, and it's implied that there's some sort of human sacrifice that's being demanded of them. So Ransom concludes that he is being kidnapped so that he is going to be sacrificed to these creatures called Sorns. And of course, he's horrified by this. And of course, he has all of these horrible ideas in his imagination that are populated by H.G. Wells. So Lewis actually, he can tell Lewis is sort of a little bit on the nose here of making fun of H.G. Wells. (laughs) Like constantly, he's constantly referring to H.G. Wells and saying, it's nothing like that. Um, (laughs) But... But he's got an idea in his head that are based on of H.G. Wells that these aliens are going to, you know, gut him and cut him up and that they're like insects and horrible, monstrous creatures. Um, so that's his expectation going into Malacandra. Um, There's a second thing. And, th- and so that's the perspective shift. Uh, well, that's not a perspective shift yet, but, you know, that's his perspective going in. But because this story is about perspective shift, there's another very, uh, very important piece of perspective shift, which I think that we should dwell on a little bit. And that's Ransom's experience of space. And this is a piece of uh, a passage of Ransom's reflection on space travel, which I think that this passage probably changed my life um because it's it, it's really i really i think the the passage that made me love reading books love literature wow. uh so it was this ran- ransom is is really struck the thing that he's really struck by is how beautiful space is and it's not what he thought it was and he's one of the things he says is that it's made him more vital it's put a lot more like inner strength into him and weston has sort of a scientific explanation for that because the rays of the other stars are penetrating them without any kind of terrestrial protect protection right that's the reason why he's feeling like this all this energy pulsing through him and then lewis says but ransom as time wore on became aware of another and more spiritual cause for his progressive lightning and exaltation of heart a nightmare long engendered in the modern mind by the mythology that follows in the wake of science was falling off him he had read of space at the back of his thinking for years he had read of space at the back of his thinking for years had lurked the dismal fancy of the cold black vacuity the utter deadness which was supposed to separate the worlds he had not known how much it affected him till now now that the very name Space seemed a blasphemous libel for this imperian ocean of radiance in which they swam. He could not call it dead. He felt life pouring into him from every moment. How indeed should it be otherwise, since out of this ocean the worlds and all their life had come? He had thought it barren. He saw now that it was the womb of worlds, Whose blazing and innumerable offspring looked down nightly, even upon the earth, with so many eyes. And here, with how many more? No, space was the wrong name. Older thinkers had been wiser when they named it simply the heavens. The heavens which declared the glory. The happy climes that lie where day never shuts his eye. Up in the broad fields of the sky. It's really good. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so space is the wrong name. I think that the th- the impression that this made on me first of all is it really did it really did challenge the way I thought about space because that was I mean we always get that pr- impression of space, especially from science fiction stories. I mean, and we have probably 2001 a Space Odyssey is a lot to blame for that, mm-hmm. or in more recent movies like Gravity or something. Yeah. Um there's the idea of space in space no one can hear you scream mm-hmm. right That's our that's our mantra and Lewis was the first person that I came across that sort of turned that on his head and said you know you know space is a really beautiful and it's it's an amazing place and you know what this also what made me think of was there's a Disney movie called Treasure Planet have you seen that Mhm and it's sort of a corny movie but I think the imagery about it is really interesting because the way it's done is it kind of just disregards the laws of what's scientifically possible and the way that the characters travel through space is through a traditional uh tra- traditional sort of uh regency era ship. Mm-hmm. I don't know what what kind of ship you would call that. Like a, you know, it's a sailboat. Yeah. They travel through space through it through an actual sailboat and it's sort of a beautiful way of looking at it because the vessel in which they're traveling actually changes your perspective or the way that you think about space because now you're not thinking about space as this, you know, this cold perilous thing that just sucks the life out of you. Even though it is perilous, I mean, actually, um, but maybe the problem is us that we're not able to participate with it well enough. But why should we assume that space is the horror, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And there's
0: something interesting about the fact that whenever we write about space or think about exploring space, it's always done in the context of these, this, the ugliness of sort of a giant technological uh, ball of metal. You know, I mean, there's, you know, there, the, the, this really. I don't know how to put it into words. It's like, it's a, it's not a, it's an ugly thing to be traveling through for something so beautiful. And you, and you wish that it could be something a little bit more elegant. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, it reminds me of, um, I just recently read The Martian, which is the, I forget who wrote it. Andy, Andy Ware, something like that. Um, and there was a movie made of The Martian recently. It's really, it's very, very good. Uh, contemporary sci-fi novel. Um but it's about a guy do you know anything about the Martian?
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah yeah.
1: Okay. Um it's about a guy who gets left on Mars accidentally and then he survives and it's a very man versus nature sort of story. He survives for long enough for his crew to turn around and come back for him, which is just this massive, intense, huge maneuver which involves lots of people working together on Earth. It involves him doing all sorts of crazy things to to make the equipment that he has do things they're not supposed to do so he can get back home. Um, and I think that story is really interesting in contrast to this story because it's it's Mars, and I guess we haven't gotten to that to that plot twist yet in our summary, but, like, Malachandra is Mars. Um, and it's also the same kind of story where it's like Dr. Ransom ends up on Mars and he has to survive for a while. Um... But his experience on Mars and the the kinds of things that he sees, Mars is a lot more inviting and has a lot more beauty on it than it has for um, Mark Watney. For Mark Watney, Mars is cold and dead and barren and also trying to kill him all the time. And he, as a single human, has to battle against Mars and against the elements and against the sandstorms and even against his own equipment sometimes um and it's his human is the humans who are his friends uh for at home and then for dr ransom he ends up on Malakandra, and he finds out very quickly and i'm jumping ahead a little bit here but he finds out that the creatures are his friends um that the different races are his friends and the only people on Malakandra who are not his friends are the people who brought him there the humans are the ones who are not his friends um which i think is interesting in that whole discussion of space is not the enemy and this is already our introduction to that idea that we think of space as the nature that we have to fight against but already ransom is starting to realize and he's gonna he's gonna be slow in learning this lesson but he's starting to realize even now the things that are out there in space are not the problem the ship you're in and the people you're with are actually the problem
0: exactly yeah so you started sort of touched on on the creatures that he meets. So we'll jump into that a little bit. So, Ransom, when he lands on Malachandra, which he later learns to be Mars, he jumps away. He escapes his captors, Weston and Divine. And he runs away and he encounters some creatures who I imagine, I sort of picture them as sort of furry bipedal otters. I don't know if that's the yeah. picture that came to your mind, sort of. It-
1: it but actually really is. they're called Hrasa.
0: <laughs> yeah. They've got whiskers and everything. Um, and they're called Hrasa. And uh, they 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 live near the water. And they they like fishing and poetry. And he realizes that there's actually a whole system of creatures, several creatures, that live on this planet. And one of the biggest discoveries that he has is that these creatures are rational and that they have a language, which is a huge thing, a huge discovery for him. But not only are they rational, but there's actually three different races of rational creatures, and Hrasa are just one of them. And so it's actually divided by climate. So at the highest point in the Hundramet, which is which are the the um, the mountains, are the Sorns. And uh, they are—they're the most—they're science—they're scientists—they're most scientific people. Um, and then at the middle ground, where ransom dwells, is the hrassa, and they are the poets and the fishers. And then below them are in the in the valleys and underground are these frog-like creatures called the fiffletrigi, and they're the artisans. They all have different roles. And They're all connected because they're all called, in their language, they're called Hanau. What's really revolutionary about that idea is that here is a world in which there is more than one race of rational creatures, which is different from from anything that we have on this planet. And this is where we begin the exploration of C.S. Lewis's mythology, where there are other rational creatures out there that you could talk to besides humans. Which, I mean, I guess that's not like a new idea, but I think Lewis is is kind of looking at it from a different way. Would you would you say? I mean, it's not just like aliens, right? Yeah. You know, because because he kind of talks about this sort of in the same way with the talking animals and Narnia, too.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, it reminds me. Well, two things reminds me of. First of all, in a weird way, you mentioned that the story is a little bit Swiftian earlier, um, this definitely yeah. reminds me of Swift. It reminds me of Gulliver's Travels in a different way because he's not making fun of the different races. Um, but there's still the idea that it's the different races are sort of divided by particular characteristics that also kind of say something about humans. But they, the thing that it says about humans is by contrast um, and by sort of zeroing in on a particular characteristic that is also sort of a human characteristic because it's a rational characteristic so that's interesting i also think it's kind of funny that he he can't really quite get away from the fantasy like sorns are kind of elf-like and the fifiltrigi are kind of dwarf-like and then the harasa are probably the most human-like um and it's a little that part is a little tolkien-esque like it's a little maybe you maybe you yeah. took a, a few too many pages out of <laughs> the book of, of your friend over here um but yeah, that he's they're they're aliens, but also, it's really a fairy tale world that we're inhabiting here. We just got in a spaceship to get there,
0: right? And he's trying. And this is again of him maybe trying to steal past watchful dragons, at least at the time that he was writing. When he maybe this is his, one of his first works of fiction, so maybe he was sort of thinking, you know, I love fairy tales and legends, but. I don't think that my modern audience is going to buy it. So I'm going to try to disguise it somehow or something like that. But actually he says it quite explicitly is that his sort of, he's use he uses, he's very careful about using scientific language about this, you know, to, to mask this as a science fiction story. But in his mythology, he's like, these are actually the real creatures. Like they really exist. And yet and so they exist in and 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 and, he, and he's saying and he admits that he's taking his cues from Greco-Roman uh, mythology, but w- the way he puts it is, no, actually, Greco-Roman theology is the reality that sort of trickled down to us. You know, right. it's kind of like Doctor Who. You know, like you know, there's an actual reality out there. This is the thing that Cyclopses and and Minotaurs and and fawns and dwarves, this is what they were based on. It was sort of, I mean, kind of maybe like a conspiracy a little bit. Like we, we got a little bit of that story to us. Right. And, and it, it leaked in, but this is, this is what the real, these are what the real goblins are. These are what the real dwarves are. One of the, so here's, so here's the commentary though. So he's discovering this kind of hierarchical structure and he's always asking them, like, "Do they ever go to war? No, they don't go to war. You know, do they, you know, do they have, like, <laughs> do, do the Ross ever want to get in affairs or anything? It's like, no, they don't really have that <laughs> problem. Um, there's no rivalries or, or that sort of thing. And it begins to dawn on him that these these creatures don't have a sense of evil. Mm-hmm. In fact, they don't have a word for evil. And the closest translation for the word for evil is bent so then we get so this the story sort of evolves into a problem of language of misunderstanding or trying to translate concepts the trouble of translating concepts that of human problems and mapping it onto a world that doesn't have that problem and that's where you get another instance of the the paradigm shift there's another there are a couple other creatures i want to introduce here that come into the story and most importantly, the introduction of Eldils. Mm-hmm. So, when you first came across this, I don't know if you can recall like your first experience of this. Who, what, what did, what did you think of the Eldils?
1: I, I mean, I don't remember what I thought of them when I was thirteen. This time, reading through it, I think partially because I was already in the mindset where I was trying to figure out what the big project was and I'd already gotten a sneaking suspicion that maybe what we were doing here was building the Christian world just on a different planet. Um, and so my immediate thought Mm -hmm. was we were dealing with angelic beings. So that's not a super fun answer because I, I think that's probably what actually is going on. Uh, but my second thought, which is probably the more interesting thought because it isn't just that they're angelic beings. Um, it's the fact that ransom who presumably has knowledge of um the idea of angels and believes in the supernatural world he's sort of immediately skeptical of the fact that they can they can talk to elders that they have these beings that they talk to that ransom cannot see um which is really interesting to me because ransom's a human and he's not a bad human he comes from a background where um he Presumably, like it mentions him doing devotions, like he seems like he's probably a Christian, even though that's not a huge deal in the story. So why is it so hard for him to believe that there are supernatural beings on this other planet? Like, is it linked to the fact that he has a difficult time thinking of these creatures as rational beings, rather because he he likes to treat them as at first, especially he kind of tends to think that they're primitive, um, and he his bias is toward. Uh, underestimating them rather than overestimating them so um, I I don't know if that has anything to do with it but yeah I thought that was that that that's interesting that Ransom doesn't get it right away it takes him a while to really buy into it to really believe Um, even though he of all people should be pretty well disposed to to get it to believe that
0: right right exactly because yeah I think it's pretty clear that Ransom is a Christian and so I think part of maybe what Lewis is saying is that, okay, let's say that you are a Christian, you believe in God and you believe in angels and, and the fallen angels, let's say. But if you were actually kidnapped and transported to another planet and you actually met them, what makes you think that you would recognize them? <laughs> you, right. Why, you know what, How would you know what they are? So it's, again, it's like the slow discovery of process... Because he's learning this through a different culture and a different language and a different way of looking at everything. So even if he meets these creatures, which he later discovers to be angels, he doesn't it takes him a long time to figure out that this is actually a creature that I know something about already. Right. Um and this happens all the way up the the angelic hierarchy. So he learns that first of all there are these creatures called Eldils, that the Hrasa are able to speak with and converse with directly. And that the Sorns, the Hrassa, and the Fifotrigi all serve the Eldils. And the Eldils all serve Oyarsa. And Oyarsa is the chief Eldil of that planet. And Oyarsa serves Maladil. And Mal-Eldil, there's the Eldil in it, because he is the king of all the, the chief of all of the Eldils, and he created the world. And again, we have Ransoms incorrect theorizing about what's happening. And this happened again when he was woke up in the spaceship, and he thought that the Earth was the Moon. Is he makes an incorrect theory about what's happening? Right. He's had to adjust his theories about the world quite a lot, but he has to continue adjusting it. And up to this point, he still thinks that the Sorns are evil and they're out to get him. So he actually erroneously concludes that. The Sorns uh, uh, actually rule the whole world, um, and Oyarsa is just the head of all the Sorns, like he's the the head honcho Sorn. And he doesn't he he. It takes him a while to actually get wrap his mind around the fact that the there are actual immaterial beings, right, called Eldils, like another plane of creatures that exist above them. So. That's something that, again, we have to uncover a little bit more later on. So we're discovering more and more about this world. But let's talk a little bit about uh, this idea of bentness and language. You had some interesting things, I think, that you wanted to say about this. Um, What's interesting is we talked about how this appears to be a world that has not, is without sin, that hasn't fallen. But there are a couple things that, don't seem exactly pre lapsarian, and by that, that's a big word that means I mean, you know, that is um, before the fall, you know, like completely mm-hmm. Edenic. For example, there's a creature who's kind of like a Loch Ness monster type creature called the Hanakra, and it's sort of a sport among the Harasa to hunt the Hanakra. Ransom asks if they think that Hanakra is evil. And they have a sort of interesting attitude towards it because they say that the Hinakra is their enemy, but it is also their joy. So there's actually a little bit of a game going on there, the fact that they fight and they and they kill it. But they have a different attitude towards death, and they don't see death as necessarily a bad thing. And they believe that it's just a phase that you go on to the to whatever the next thing they get to be in the abode of Maladil, basically. Um, and so... And there are some instances or stories of fallenness and ransom, it's why he was talking about do you ever does do the harasa ever want to get into affairs and the and the harasa says, Oh well, we have one story of one guy who loved two <laughs> girl harasses at the same time. <laughs> like that happened <laughs> once. And so it's like it's not like the idea of evil has is completely non existent. There is some some sort of, I I don't know. This is the question: Is there some sort of like partial fallenness that exists in this world?
1: What I think is super interesting is the fact that when we first meet the Hrossa, because they're the first Malachandrians that we meet, right? And so everything that they say about the world, Ransom just sorts of sort of accepts being true about the whole world, Um which. Uh, to call we do a lot of callbacks i'm going to call forward a little bit to the to the thing we're going to talk about next time um, which is a ted talk called the danger of a single story and in that ted talk the speaker um, talks about how it's dangerous to when you when you know one story about a people or a particular place um, then that's the story you tell about everyone if you if you know one nigerian and that one nigerian was very poor then you have it in your head now that all Nigerians are poor, which doesn't allow you to think about those people in a, in a more true or complete or complicated way. Um, and so when he meets the Harasa, the Harasa story is the only story that he knows, and he sort of assumes that of, of everybody. And when you meet the Harasa, you sort of think that that's the story that's being told about all the Malacandrians. Um, but I think it's really interesting that when later Ransom meets the Sorns, and the Sorens are a little bit disparaging of the Hrasa in some ways. Um, there's some comment at some point about how uh, the Hrasa, instead of saving your life, would, like, write a poem about you <laughs> once you were dead. And they would think that was just as good. But probably they could have saved your life if they had just thought about it a little harder and a little more. But they think it's just fine to just write you a poem after you're dead. And you kind of think, oh yeah, well, that's kind of a flaw. Like, that's that's not the greatest thing ever. But... They have flaws, and the flaws aren't evil. They're not sin in the same way that we might think of sin. Um, They're just imperfect creatures, meaning they're a little rough around the edges, meaning that they sometimes have gaps in their knowledge, meaning that they don't know everything, which is actually a really interesting way to think about Adam and Eve, pre-fall because like what are adam and eve pre-fall they're not god Mm
0: -hmm. they're not
1: angels they don't
0: know everything i mean they can't they
1: don't know everything even
0: if you're you don't have well sin in the traditional sense you still don't know everything
1: yeah so and humans humans naturally have flaws and i don't think being a flawed person means uh means being sinful necessarily like does the fact that um you know some people uh have lower IQ than other people that some that there's difference in ability and difference in um capacity to understand difference in physical ability the fact that I will never be a gymnast um and other people will never enjoy running like those things might be a flaw in the sense that if you were a superhero you'd have super strength and super speed and you'd be able to fly and you'd be able to do all these things And the fact that you don't have those things, you might consider a flaw, but that's not really sin. So uh, that made me think about the pre-fall world a little differently. So I I would tend towards saying it is sort of a pre-fall world and he is depicting a kind of an Eden. But that doesn't mean that the world has no flaws and that the inhabitants of the world have no flaws.
0: Yeah, there's another reason why the Hrasa hunt the Hanakra, though which is actually part of Lewis's imaginative mythology and that is because because he was so fascinated with medieval cosmology Mars is the god of war Mars is the war planet and later when he goes to Venus which is in the next installment Venus is Aphrodite the god of love and this is really in, I mean this is where it gets really interesting because you see that there's like this contrast between masculinity and femininity happening in that which you discover later in Paralandra. but Malakandra, because the gravity is so much lighter, the mountains are like giant spears. They're described as spikes, and right. they're colder. They're also the society is hierarchical. So you got the Sorns, the Rasa, and the Fiffeltrigi. You know, mm-hmm. and they all organize themselves. And that's um, I mean, you know, and we don't want to like you don't want to confuse like masculine with male specifically and feminine with female specifically, because Lewis wants to think bigger than that. But he does sort of describe the world as sort of this masculine world being the war planet, being the God of war. And that's sort of like the personality of that planet. And mm-hmm. again, then he's talking about this, like, okay. He does this with like every single planet. Every single planet has, there's a god of that world or an Oyarsa of that world, and they all have different personalities. It's not, and that's not a problem. It's, it's part of the great dance, is what he would call it. He, I think what part of what he's trying to do is say there's, there's an aspect or an energy, I guess I would say, an energy behind the warlike or masculine spirit specifically warlike i guess which is not inherently bad or evil Mm -hmm. and what it is is i mean that's a little bit it has to be speculative by definition you kind of have to parse it out but there's like every single emotion or energy or personality has god created for some kind of purpose so the fact that you know you might fashion a spear or something. And that, you know, that that's necessarily evil. I think maybe Lewis might be saying that's not necessarily the case. Now, you know, I guess maybe people could debate about that because um, like the issue of whether Christians should be involved in, in war, so to speak. And I, I know that's a pretty heated topic. Um, Lewis was not a pacifist. Yeah. So, I mean, you can kind of see his perspective going in there. I'm not I'm still not sure what I what I think about that. Um So I'm still making my mind up about about that. Um, Mm -hmm. But anyway, the question of what evil is does definitely come up. Because Lewis is like, okay, but there is killing is murder is wrong, right? Yeah. And there is a sense of like violence or unfair or unjust killing and violence, which definitely deserves condemnation. And this is and, and what happens eventually at some point is... One of the Harasa, one of Ransom's Harasa friends, gets killed by gunshot from either Divine or Weston. One of them shoots him. And then Ransom is just filled with a sense of like remorse about this. And he's having a really difficult time putting into words what he's feeling.
1: I, that was one of my favorite scenes. And kind of the first moment rereading it, or I guess re listening to it, where I was like, oh, wow, okay, this. There's something really, really good about this. Um, and it reminded me of, this is sort of an interesting connection to make, I guess, because it's not really a work of the same literary merit or anything, but have you seen the movie Galaxy Quest? Yeah. So, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen Galaxy Quest, but the protagonist, I don't even remember his name, he plays basically a Captain Kirk sort of character on an old TV show that doesn't is isn't airing anymore called Galaxy Quest that's basically just... Um, the crew of the Starship Enterprise or whatever it is in this world. Um, and it's a Star Trek parody. But then there are these aliens in a different world who see the galaxy, like they, they intercept the transmission of these galaxy quest shows and they think that that's documentation. They think that it's a documentary of something that's really happening. And so they go and they get this actor or these actors, um, And the goal is for them to come save them from this alien enemy. Uh, Anyway, the point is that there's a scene in that movie where um, the main character has to explain... Because the aliens who think that the Galaxy Quest show is a documentary, they don't have any concept of lying. They're very pure, very good creatures. And they don't even have a word for it. They don't understand what that would mean. And so there's this really kind of heartbreaking scene where the main character has to explain um, that he lied. That he made them believe that he was something that he wasn't. And that's a a show, and the show is just pretending, and that that's not real. Um, And even though it's a really silly movie, that that scene is really touching. Um, And this scene reminded me of that a lot. There's something about trying to express to a creature that is so good that he fundamentally can't really understand what you're trying to confess and there's the give and take between the fact that ransom needs forgiveness he needs this he needs something which is for this this cross to tell him it's okay um like i forgive you i know you did something wrong and i'm going to like pardon you for that but in the time before this Hras dies, there's not even enough time for Ransom to develop the communication necessary to use words like sorry or shame or forgiveness um, because the Hras doesn't have a conception of those things even because he's that pure. Right. Um, which is so sad. There's something really heartbreaking about that. Um, and immediately tell even. For how good Ransom is, because Ransom really is a pretty good person, and for how good he is, he still has this moment where he's done wrong to this very pure and good creature who's better than he is, and he can't even ask forgiveness.
0: Right. Well, part of the problem is that, and again, this is the perspectival shift, because you actually need the Christian narrative of Christ and the redemptive power of Christ. You need that context in order to actually understand what forgiveness is. So even if you were, let's like suppose that this multiverse is true and God actually created several different planets inhabited by rational beings who did not sin. Then like, are these people going to need the gospel, so to speak? Well, No, not technically, because we're the only ones that need it. We're the only ones that need to hear this narrative of forgiveness. And so it's sort of a shock, this idea. The gospel is actually shocking to them as well as it is to us. Mm -hmm. And actually, it was interesting because there was a a part where Ransom says, uh, Lewis says, after Ransom discovered that they were rational, he had felt a vague duty to catechize them. And then realized <laughs> that he was the one being catechized, which was sort of yep. a, sort of funny, um, but we'll, we'll we'll get to that in a second. Okay, so so we got this problem of trying to understand the notion of forgiveness, which he's having a difficult time translating. But let's get to the real punchline here, which is the basically the central plot twist of the story, and that is why this book is called Out of the Silent Planet. So Ransom receives directions from the Oyarsa of Malacandra that he is to meet him. And he is sent on a journey up the Hondramit, the mountains, to meet the Sorns. And the Sorns are going to help him find Oyarsep. And once he confronts the Sorns, he realizes that the Sorns are completely benevolent creatures, contrary to what he had supposed. Um, and that he was just projecting his own, you know, uh, terrestrial notions of alien species onto him. And well, that, he
1: this whole time, yeah. Ransom keeps looking for a bad guy. Yeah, exactly. he never finds a bad guy. There's no bad guy. There's only Weston and Divine. Those are the only bad guys. <laughs> Which is so
0: funny. And also, you know what? It makes me think of like the man who was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton, right? Yes, there, yes. There's a constant, like he's a detective who set out to find out, find a band of anarchists. And then every single anarchist turns out to be another detective and they're all good guys at the end. Is yep. kind of what happens here. But anyway, okay. So he meets the Sorn, and the Sorns are like goblins, I guess. But they're like, what are they? They're, I think they're compared to Cyclopses. But they're super tall creatures with, like, feathery legs and kind of, like, very austere, uh, sunken cheekbones. They're very pale, and they live up in the mountains. And they're the scientific creatures. They're not, like, the poet, poetic uh, Rasa. And it's here that Ransom learns... At least the Sorn says, I think you're from Tholkandra. And Ransom says, what's Tholkandra?" And the Sorn says that Thulcandra is the silent planet. And every single planet in the solar system is not, none of them are silent planets. In fact, every single one of them is ruled by an Oyarsa and everyone is in active communication from, with one another. But something happened on Tholkandra, And what happened is that the Oyarsa of that world became bent. He became a fallen Oyarsa. And Maladil punished this Oyarsa by cutting him off from communication, quarantining him, basically, from the other planets, by chaining him and at the gates of the moon and not letting him any Eldils from other worlds or the bent Oyarsa of that world to travel between worlds. And so that world is called tholkandra which means the silent planet and i think that this is what is such a like a brilliant and subversive plot twist that happens in this story because this is the story that completely inverts everything that we assume to be about science fiction traditionally because right our notion of science fiction is we are the speaking planet we are the only speaking creatures that or rational creatures that we know of in the world and this and space is silent um but really and even and this is even true of like medieval cosmology which is where lewis was getting his inspiration from there's an idea of this thing called the music of the spheres right or the heavens declare the glory of god so mm-hmm. there's music space is full of celestial music and the problem is not that it's silent. The problem is that we're deaf and we can't hear it. So the the silent planet the silent planet is Earth and this is um, the part of where he discovers this is the Sorn leads him and has him look through a, a telescope. He's looking through the telescope and this is the description of what he sees. He saw perfect blackness and, floating in the center of it, seemingly an arm's length away, a bright disc about the size of a half-crown. Most of its surface was featureless, shining silver, towards the bottom markings appeared, and below them a white cap, just as he had seen the polar uh, caps in astronomical photographs of Mars. He wondered for a moment if it was Mars he was looking at. Oh, there's a fun thing. We've already talked about this, but he actually hasn't figured out that he's on Mars. Um, I don't know if he even ever figures out in this book, but anyway.
1: Yeah, I don't know either.
0: Then, as his eyes took in the markings better, he recognized what they were. Northern Europe and a piece of North America. They were upside down with the North Pole at the bottom of the picture, and this somehow shocked him. But it was Earth he was seeing, perhaps even perhaps England though the picture shook a little and his eyes were quickly getting tired, and he could not be certain that he was not imagining it. It was all there in that little disc, London, Athens, Jerusalem, Shakespeare. There everyone had lived and everything had happened, and there, presumably, his pack was still lying in the porch of an empty house near Sterk. "'Yes,' he said dully to the thorn, "'that is my world.' It was the bleakest moment in all his travels. When I first read that, I was actually, I guess being 12, I was confused why that was such a bleak moment for him. So do we want to like sort of parse that out? Like why that is the reaction that he had?
1: Sure. I mean, it's a moment of humility, right? Because he even, you know, as we've said, for how good Ransom is, you know, Ransom's not a bad person. He still has the natural pride of humanity of the human race. He thinks that they're so great. He thinks they're so important. Um, and then travels all to the way the way to this world, to Malakandra. And even in Malakandra, the whole time, he is constantly thinking that that's still true. Um, that humans are. Like, that the, the people that he's meeting, that the the Sorns and the Hrasa, um, that they're primitive in some way, that they're creatures, that they're not as good as humans. Um, and he still assumes that the, wor- the laws of his planet apply here. So things like, someone has to rule over everyone else. What's the dominant race? That sort of thing. Um, he's still trying to apply all the laws of his world, and then now suddenly that's all come crashing down on him, right? Because he's looking at this, he sees how small it is. And how, you know, he thought he thought he was the, the rational one. He thought he was the speaking one. But he really is from the silent planet. And this is the better world. These are the better people. You know, better. I, I don't mean better in the sense of, like, more worthwhile. Just uh, these people don't have the same flaws, the same sin that, that humans do. Um, and he's forced to acknowledge that, I think, for the first time. And that's an act of humility.
0: Right. Yeah. And so I think that, and that kind of like sets up what ends up being the climax of the story. And that is a council happening at a place called, I think, Meldelorn, where Ransom talks about, discusses, has a conversation with the Oyarsa, the Eldils, the Hrasa, all the creatures of Malacandra. And Weston and Divine end up getting captured and taken, and they're being held on trial. And I think this is probably the most interesting interaction in the story. Actually, I understand why some people think that this this book is dull, because they get too caught up in the long, solitary journeys that Ransom goes on. I think anyone who has given up on the story is because they just got lost when he was, like, in transit, Traveling right. from one place to another. And so maybe that's a, like a fair criticism. Maybe he could have been a little bit moved a little faster there. Um, but it really does get interesting when he gets to the point of this of this trial scene. Um, but so what happens here is Ransom finally meets the Oyarsa of Malacandra. And he gets the final explanation of why everything happened. So What happened was Weston and Divine first went to Malacandra. They were living there for a while. Oyarsa sent the Sorns there to um, to greet them because they were the most human-like looking creatures. And the Sorns requested that they have an audience with Maladil. I mean, not Maladil. Oyarsa. Mm -hmm. It's like, basically, let me take you to my leader. Um, And... Weston and Divine are terrified, at least from, from the perspective of the Sorns. They're like, well, these people are not very bright. Um, and so the, the Oyarsa say, okay, these humans aren't very bright, and they're here. And the reason why they're here is because the rivers flow with gold on Mars, and so they're here for the, for the gold, which is called sun's blood in their language. And so Oyarsa says, okay, you got to treat these people like children. And you have to say, you can have no more sun's blood until you send one of your race to me. And the thing, but the funny, this is just like the hilarious, ironic thing is that, or the satirical thing, is that Weston and Divine assume that these are primitive natives and that they are like the children. So they assume that when they ask for sending another race to Oyarsa, that they're looking for human sacrifice. So they, So they went back. All they wanted is, like... Oyarsa didn't even want them to go back and get another guy. They just wanted them to, like, send another one of your race, as in, like, come and talk to me, is basically... It was a translation problem. But instead, they go millions of miles back, all the way back to Earth, to kidnap a guy, to bring him back against his will. And so the whole thing was just a giant misunderstanding
1: similarly like we said earlier there's not really any bad guys even Weston and divine who are you know probably bad they were going to sacrifice someone so yeah. like that's pretty bad but also like the reason that they're doing it isn't even really that nefarious it's just kind of they thought they were being told to so they're doing it
0: well i mean it is a little bit nefarious i mean there's there's evil in them because there's evil motivation. Right,
1: it's, it's not it's not what you might expect right. it's not the kind of huge like this isn't thanos who's gonna snap his fingers and make half the yeah. world disappear this is a couple of guys who misinterpreted something that they were told and they were willing to do it even though it was kind of a terrible thing to do
0: right well i think where the evil resides or the the uh, what would you call it? the satanic force the bentness is the fact that these, that Weston and Divine attribute the, or let's say duplicate or project the worst of human motivations onto these people, right? They assume that these people want to sacrifice or, you know, that they're barbaric as, as, you know, a lot of their own people are barbaric and that betrayal is something maybe par for the course because that's something that happens all the time on earth. They assume that that's what they wanted. Um, so that's where we get into the discussion of, of, bentness, like the idea of bentness and Oyarsa, and And so, but Weston has some, like what you might say is noble motivations because what he wants to do is he wants to save the human race. And that's the, you know, uh, because he's an evolutionary biologist and he believes in the idea of well, that the one day the Earth will go extinct and that we need to leap from planet to planet so that we can go on and on and evolve into higher forms of being, right? Which is basically the plot of Interstellar, right? And then Oyarsa o- o- thinks, okay, that's a little bit weird. Like, why would you want to do that? Don't you realize that everything has its time and maybe not all races are supposed to last forever? And again, that's like, there's... From their perspective, a different attitude towards death and also obedience to a higher power, which is Maladil. And so he says one of the things the way Oyarsa looks at it is he says, oh, yeah, Weston, actually your motivations aren't as bent as I thought they were. But what happened is that you took one good thing, which is posterity for the human race, and you prioritize that over all other kinds of good in, for instance, you know, mercy, justice compassion kindness uh fairness towards your fellow person because you're perfectly willing to throw other your fellow hanau, your fellow man under the bus for the sake of posterity and that's where like i think the discussion of evil comes in and so yeah do we so yeah i think that's a really i think it's always a, re- a very interesting idea again this is like a challenge of what our notion of evil is Because their word for evil is not evil, it's bent.
1: Um, Well, that reminds me of a couple things. First of all, the whole idea of sin being hamartia, that it's missing a mark, um, corresponds obviously pretty directly to the idea of something being bent. That's a really literal literal translation of maybe what we might think of as sin, which is there is a correct way to be. and that doesn't even mean, like, correct, as in you do the correct thing. Like, there's a... There is your nature. There is what you actually are. Um, in the same way that, like, if you make a pencil, what a pencil is, is it's a straight thing. <laughs> like, it doesn't have a bend in it. And then if you have a bunch of pencils coming out and then one of them, like, is, like, cracked so that it's bent a little bit, then the problem with it is that it's bent. It's supposed to be one way, and then it's another way. Um, so, first of all, that's that's interesting to me. And then second of all, the fact that in this world, um, humans are the ones who are super bent. <laughs> and Thulcandra, the silent planet, that's the place that's super bent. And the rest of the universe is kind of doing okay. Um, they're, not, they're not super bent. They're kind of doing what they were created to do. And that's not necessarily attributable to them. It's not that they have really strong morals or that they just figured it out correctly. It's just that they're doing they're doing what they do. They're being themselves. They're being what they were created to be. Um, and it's the humans who somewhere along the line ate the fruit and things went wrong. Um, and they ended up being bent, which is just, I mean, as like you've been saying, a really different way to think about alien races and about a cosmic mythology.
0: So I think to kind of get to like, I, I guess the the crooks here, which is sort of the Mars Hill thing, right, mm. is to talk about, I mean, we want to, hopefully, we've been talked a lot about, like, the Christian universe, so to speak, but so far there hasn't been a really any kind of direct reference to the gospel, which I think is really interesting that Lewis went at it from this particular angle, because like we said, these are unfallen creatures, and so they're actually, the question of salvation is not really a problem for them. Sure. Theoretically. Which is, what is interesting is how the gospel actually works itself into the story. And it's, it's so subtle, and I actually didn't pick this up until literally this morning. You blink and you'll miss it. But here it is. Here it is. Because Ransom, one of the things that Oyarsa wants from Ransom is, he says... You are from the silent planet, man. I'm curious. I actually don't know what happened. That's what Oyarsa says. I don't know why it went silent. I want to know what went ha- What happened on that planet. And then they have a discussion. And it says, and this is in chapter chapter 21... Um, all that afternoon, Ransom remained alone answering Oyars' questions. I am not allowed, the, author, the narrator, Lewis, I am not allowed to record this conversation beyond saying that the voice concluded it with the words, You have shown me more wonders than are known in the whole of heaven. I had to think about that. Because it's so, it's like it's almost too subtle <laughs> what mm-hmm. he's doing here. But because I've read a lot of Lewis, I think I it, it helped me like figure out okay, I I know what he's saying here, and what he's saying is that Ransom told the story of the gospel. He tells Oyarsa, this is what Maladil did, did the chief. This is what Maladil did. This is what God did to save. The fallen race of man and what is i mean according to this story it's like actually this is the first time al-yarsa is doing has has known this so even though he's got this relationship with maladil you know god is so much bigger than our picture of him that you know from their perspective it's like why would you assume why would maladil tell him the story at all why would Oyarso right. even know that that happened? Um, it's not like it's a secret. It's just like it's a big world, and so maybe this is the first time he's hearing it. But right. he's amazed by it. He's amazed, and this is like the the punch, the big punch of it, because this is where this is where the 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 the, the perspective we're looking at the marvel of not only fallen humanity. But the marvel of the redemption of humanity from, again, from the perspective of alien lives. And this is the story, like Oyarsa now gets to hear the story of how Maladel took on Earthly the form of sinful flesh, the form of man, and condemned sin in the flesh and saved the race of bent creatures.
1: Yeah, I mean, the two thoughts that I have are, first of all, it's really the crux of the whole story, in part, I think, because Ransom communicates in their language what he knows to be true in his, in his understanding, like, in his Christian worldview, and he connects those two things together, like, really for the first time. And there's no sense in the story of him going, oh, wait... You must be talking about, oh, I need to tell you the gospel. That's it. That's what needs to happen. Yeah. He just gets it. They connect for the first time in his head. He says, Oh, the what you know as Maladil is who I know as God. Yeah. And who who came to earth as Christ. Um, and so he communicates it in that language and he doesn't have to go okay well this is our story and this probably is no he just like tells the story and presumably tells it in the words that this world can understand um so he realizes that it's true in this world and in that world and he connects those two things so i think that's important also it reminds me of psalm 8 uh where it says what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him for you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor and the reason i think that's really relevant is first of all because um the older translation i think this is the king james translation i'm not sure not the one i just read but in the king james translation i think it says you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings which is interesting in the context of this story right because man is made a little lower than the heavenly beings but then there's this idea of what you know, you come from the silent planet and it's all contained in this little disk, and your people are the bent people. And there are, there are even all these other creatures. It's not that man is the only species that God has to, to love and care for. And if he, if he had just let man go, like if he had let man destroy himself, he even has other, he even has other races. Uh, but what is man that you are mindful of him
0: (laughs) right right the universe is a is a big place
1: yeah it's like this isn't your only creature you have other creatures and yet you're going to love man so much that you are going to become a man and then die for them which really is in a way showing man more love even than the other creatures who never fell at all which is sort of a prodigal son story right that all these other creatures uh you know if they never fell then they never had to be shown that kind of love. And that in some sense, that's a gift that man has. That because of because of the, that past, because of the fall, this is how you know that God loves you.
0: And, you know, there is a verse, and I actually, I think this is sort of silly, but there is a verse where Jesus says, I have sheep, I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. And there's some speculation that, Jesus was talking about alien creatures. And yeah. even though I kind of think that that's a little bit silly, mm-hmm. um, I love it. <laughs> <You know>? Yes. <laughs> it's
1: dumb, but also it's great.
0: It's great, you know? And I think, I don't know, I, I'm pretty sure Lewis is not like actually believes, well, I don't know what he, I, I mean, I mean, I don't know if he's, what his actual opinions are about alien races, but I think that right. exploring the idea of alien races from this perspective, it's really just a way of of just pointing back to the gospel mm-hmm. and just trying to look at it from fresh eyes. yeah, and and I think the verse the verse that i that I thought of was again, the words of Jesus where he says, the queen of the South will rise up against the men of this generation and condemn it because she traveled from the ends of the world to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here. Mm -hmm. And what I think I, what I love about that verse is again, it's the perspective of the alien of the foreigner, which is the, I think the heart of this story is the perspective of the foreigner and the perspective and, and it's the Queen of the South coming to see Solomon, she will condemn this generation because this generation, Christ came into this world and we didn't recognize him as God. Just like Ransom didn't recognize elders as angels. It's like, you know, you had what it took to understand what was happening, but you didn't because you were blinded by your mm-hmm. sin. And so you didn't realize that in fact, you thought the opposite. You you assumed, you assumed that this person was actually not only not good, not your savior, but he was actually the apotheosis of evil itself. He, you were right. evil incarnate. You know, he was a blasphemer, and so it was this assumption of me projecting my flaws, my fallenness onto what was actually human, like perfection itself and not recognizing w- what was good as actually good and that was a problem of it was me not not them and then and then what happens is that there's this is this whole is the, is the paradigm shift the change of perspective when you realize i'm the person who's not good and i'm the person that needs to be saved and y- yeah this and he was the one who was saving me
1: I think that's probably a good place to end
0: thank you everyone for listening and we'll be seeing you in a couple weeks
1: thanks for listening
0: you've been listening to unreliable narrators a mars hill podcast hey mars <laughs> unreliable narrators is an original podcast produced by stoa alumni you can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found if you enjoyed this podcast please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast or email us at unreliable narratorsstola at gmail.com We'd love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is produced by Raymond Okapil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing The Danger of a Single Story by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Until then, my fellow Hanau. This really is a silent planet, because none of you ever write to us. Bye. I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide And maybe it's true that nothing is new But I can see so much more in you